Greetings. We hope you enjoy this podcast of a Science for the Public program. If you'd like to see the video of this program, just search the title on our website under the Archives tab at the top of the homepage, www.scienceforthepublic.org. Good evening, I'm Yvonne Stapp for Science for the Public, and I welcome you to tonight's presentation for our uh, science literacy series at MIT. In the past year, we've been shocked in this country by a whole new level of misinformation generally, and in the case of climate change, the combination of misinformation and denial now seriously undermine our ability to deal with a global crisis. Tonight, we have very good fortune to present a pair of Northeastern University professors who will explain on the one hand climate change facts related to coastal ecosystems and on the other hand the psychology behind the acceptance or rejection of scientific fact. Brian Helmuth is a professor of marine and environmental sciences and also professor of policy and urban affairs at Northeastern University. His focus is on predicting the likely uh, ecological impacts of climate change on coastal ecosystems. He provides decision makers with forecasts about climate change impact on coastal ecosystems and he also collaborates with colleagues around the world and just okay. recently came back from Iraq. Uh, and we are very lucky that he is actually in the country tonight. We've got managed to get him. John Coley is an associate professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and his research is concerned with the interrelated structure of knowledge and reasoning and conceptual development. We really need that now. This science happens to be a very rich area at this time, and it offers some insight into why people believe what they believe and how how we all handle facts. Dr. Helmuth and Dr. Coley combine their expertise tonight to discuss possible methods for more effectively educating the public about climate change and strategies for adaptation. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Brian Helmuth and John Coley. Well, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Um, what John and I would like to talk about is this burgeoning collaboration we, we have um, where a couple months ago we discovered we have a, a lot of common interests, more than you might think between an ecologist and a, and a psychologist, all centered on, on climate change. So tonight we're going to give you kind of a, a wide-ranging romp of where our collaboration has, has gone and, and more so where it's, it's heading in the, the future. So just to start off with is, is kind of a confession. I, I never thought I'd be a climate scientist. I never meant to be a climate scientist. Um, it just happened. And you know, to be perfectly honest, I became a marine biologist because I wanted to go out and go scuba diving and see all sorts of really cool things like you see in this picture. And then in graduate school, um, site after site um, would turn into something like this. And so I think it's, that's true for a lot of us. We come, become climate scientists because everything we study starts to die. Um, so it's very easy to become depressed as a climate scientist, but um, the answer to that is to focus on solutions. And I think a lot of that's what we're going to do tonight is figure out how do we communicate this with a goal towards looking at, at solutions. So how do we look at something like this, communicate this to somebody who may not be able to experience this, this firsthand, 
but yet convey some sort of emotional impact, some sort of um, connection, so that we can enact um, uh, solutions to this. So my area of expertise is called ecological forecasting. And I, I think that the best explanation of this is one that a, a reporter gave me a couple of years ago. And so I kind of described to him what I, what I do. And he said, well, huh, you know, that's really a lot like if you're an EMT at a train wreck, that you show up and you've got 100 victims. And frankly, you're not going to be able to save them all. And this is where you go out and you put the toe tags on them. <coughs> Some of them, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to save them. And if you try to exert all your effort, all your resources on that one person, you're going to miss a lot of the people that you could save. Some are fine. If you let them sit for a while, you can get back to them later. But it's the ones that are really the, the kind of yellow toe tags. And if you do something right now, if we do something right away, we have a chance of, of saving them. So a lot of what I do um, is trying to, to triage, is trying to figure out, uh, prioritize, how do we expend resources, how do we expend political willpower, how to expend um, time on trying to find solutions to, to coastal adaptation. And so like other scientists, what I was trained at doing was looking for patterns. I mean, we all know this, if you remember back to your, your third grade science class, it's all about looking for pattern. You look for pattern in the laundry soap. I mean, I've judged a lot of science fair competitions. A lot of them are laundry soap. Is how do you look for patterns? How do you then explain them? So you know, we may look for this pattern on a mountainside where we see one species of plant replacing another one. Um, we then conceptualize this in a textbook as this nice, neat diagram where we look at the replacement of one species over another one as moving up this, this mountainside. And so understanding patterns and trying to explain them is, is what we do. And really, this is the, the basis of the, the scientific method, where we start with observations. We discern what we think is a pattern. Based on what we know of the system already, what other scientists have done, we come up with a tentative hypothesis. We come up with a way to try to falsify that hypothesis. And then eventually, if we do that enough times, we come up with a, a theory to explain that. And really, that's where we're at with climate change right now, is, is the level of, of theory. Where it's poked and prodded for so many different angles, um, we're really confident that anthropogenic climate change is happening. And we have some idea of the mechanisms driving it. So that's where I am as a scientist, but as Yvonne mentioned, I'm also in a school of public policy, which means that a lot of what I do is trying to figure out how to communicate this to people who can do something about this. How do we communicate to the public? How do we communicate to decision makers? And really, this has very little in most of these cases to do with facts. I mean, we can show as many data and as many facts as we want to to most members of the public, and it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. So really, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about and what, what drew me to, um, to John's lab and, and his expertise is, is really this idea that you know, we all have our different perceptions of reality. We all have our different ways of processing patterns we see. Um, and you know, we can have the same information. So in this case, are there three boards or are there four? Um, I think most of you have probably seen this optical illusion before where you know, is this an, an older woman where that is her nose? Is that a younger woman where that is her chin? Same information, different interpretations of this. This has, of course, gotten even more dire in recent, um, in, in the past year, where there's some discussion of are we really living in a post-fact world? That we can present as many, you know, what we call facts or, or realities we want to, and it may have absolutely no impact on policy whatsoever, which we find really frustrating as a scientist. And climate change is probably the ultimate expression of this, right? I mean, if we look at the, the same information, um, you know, are we uh, denying what we see, um, or are we blowing it out of proportion, or as scientists, are we trying to find that middle ground to actually 
present some objective form of reality so that we can do something about it. So I want to pass over to, to John to talk a little bit about this idea of you know, how do our perceptions of the world around us really affect our ability to, to recognize pattern, to explain it, to communicate it. Um, and in doing so, how does it affect our, our willingness and our ability to, to find solutions? Thank you, Brian. So uh, my name is John Coley. I'm very happy to be here. Um, when we're talking about recognizing patterns, we're sort of starting to leave the area of ecology and starting to venture into the area of cognitive science. And that's what I do. I'm a cognitive scientist. I study how people think. So cognitive science can be thought of as the interdisciplinary study of the mind. Um, we as cognitive scientists look at how we transform physical signals like light and sound into representations. How we manipulate those representations mentally and how those kinds of manipulations give rise to things like predictions or explanations or behavior. Now, one kind of process that cognitive science studies can be thought of as a domain general process. And these are the sorts of cognitive operations that we use in lots of different areas, lots of different subject areas. So for example, categorization. We categorize all kinds of things. Memory, decision making, pattern recognition. These are sort of general cognitive processes that we see at play over and over again in different subject areas. So just to give you an example of pattern recognition, you may or may not have seen these actual images before, but they should be kind of familiar, right? And the reason that they should be kind of familiar is because you've probably seen this image before. So what you did there, it seems like a very simple act of cognition, but you were able to look at a novel image and recognize it and classify it based on your prior experience. Here's another exercise in pattern recognition, and I want you guys to, to take an active part here for a moment. I have nine statements up here, and I want you to talk with the people around you about how you might organize these statements into groups. Which of these statements seem like they have um, something in common? So take a moment, actually talk to the person next to you about how you might, which of these statements go together? All right, what did you come up with? You guys seem to be having a very interesting conversation. Can, can you say a little bit about what you came up with? Fantastic, well done. Um, there's no right answer, of course. I'm a psychologist. Um, one way to organize them is sort of what you guys came up with. So, Educators, when, so all of these, by the way, are misconceptions. Educators, when they're dealing with people's misconceptions, often do so um, by topic, sort of how they break out in terms of how science divides the world up. So one way to think about these particular statements is in terms of earth science, volcanoes, greenhouse effect, and ice, chemistry, molecules, hydrogen, and water, and biology species, and plants, all right? Um, but what I want to propose is another half of cognitive science might have a different idea for how we might think about these. So 
Another side of cognitive science, my side in particular, looks at domain-specific processes. So how people come to think about particular, air, particular phenomena, particular groups of phenomena in the world. So in my lab, we refer to these kinds of thinking as cognitive construals. And, and that's just a fancy word for the kinds of ideas or theories of assumptions or assumptions that people spontaneously develop in response to their interaction with the world. So every day we use these sorts of construals to make predictions, to explain what happens to us, um, and to basically get around. So what I want to talk a little bit about is three of these cognitive construals. And these are things that are called teleological, essentialist, and anthropocentric thinking. There will not be a quiz. <laughs> um, but just to kind of give you a sense of what I'm talking about, teleological thinking might be related to some of the stuff you guys were talking about. And it's the idea that you're developing a causal explanation for some phenomena based on a goal or an outcome or a function. So an example of teleological thinking might be Brian and I came here to tell you about our research. That was our goal, and that's sort of what caused us to come here. Perfectly legitimate explanation for human behavior. You might say, the stock bubble burst in order to compensate for overvalued stocks. I hope it's not a sore point right now with anyone. Um, or species adapt in order to survive. Um, the latter two might be sort of more questionable in terms of their correctness, but they're all examples of teleological explanations. Another kind of thinking is essentialist thinking. And essentialist thinking is sort of the belief or the assumption that members of a class are relatively uniform, static, and share lots of properties because they share some underlying essence or reality. This is a, an assumption that people make in many different areas of life. For example, the problem with your computer is that it's a PC. <laughs> that's, that's sort of based on the idea that there's some underlying failure in the PC that leads to the problems that, that you see. Or different cells contain different DNA. Again, the idea that there's kind of a one-on-one -on -one correspondence between what you see and what's underneath. The third one that I want to talk about is anthropocentric thinking. And this is the idea that we often over-attribute human characteristics or analogies or think of humans as exceptional in ways that were really not exceptional. So examples of that might be the unemployment rate resisted federal intervention or Russia is encroaching on Ukraine or plants get their food from the soil. All right? So these are three different flavors of cognitive construals, three different ways that our sort of domain-specific thinking might impact our understanding of the world. And, and we see these systematically um, early in development. So we see these in relatively young children. And most of these we see consistently across cultural contexts. So these are relatively stable and universal, I don't want to say universal, widespread in terms of characterizing human cognition. So what we can do is we can take the misconceptions we were talking about earlier and we can sort of think about a different way of classifying them, which is like this. So the first three are teleo or the, the first column, one, six, and seven, are all teleological. They span different areas of science but they all involve the assumption that there's some goal or function that's causing 
an action. The second, um, oh, I mixed the other two up. The titles are wrong for the other two. Okay, I'm glad I got that. This is anthropocentric thinking, by the way. Um, the greenhouse effect is due to human activities. Um, hydrogen reacts with fluorine because it wants to gain an electron. So these are sort of anthropomorphism, using humans as an analogy when they're not necessarily appropriate. And essentialist thinking, these ideas are the members of a species are essentially the same. They're essentially identical. Um, water turns blue with copper sulfate because there's some internal chemical that has this causal property. So these are examples of, again, misconceptions across domains that all might stem from this underlying way of thinking about the world. All right? Make sense so far? Okay. Um, so our hypothesis is that these underlying ways of thinking give rise to systems of misconceptions, um, systems of related misconceptions. So for example, um, even the most clearly presented and simple information is filtered through these constraints that we have in order for us to understand it. So for example, you might take a brilliant professor trying to communicate information. Um, this professor might be communicating information about thermoregulation, for example, in an extremely clear and straightforward way. Um, and you might have a highly motivated learner trying to learn this information. This could be in the classroom. It could be outside of the classroom. It could be someone listening to a news report. But the point we want to make is that this person's understanding of what they're being told is going to be filtered through this intuitive thinking, filtered through this sort of construal-based thinking, which might result in systematic misconceptions. And these misconceptions are not merely factual errors. They're, they're um, the result of using these intuitive cognitive construals to understand what is essentially non-intuitive or counterintuitive scientific information. Oh, OK. More. God, I'm just going to keep talking. All right. Um, in my lab, we've done some research on this in the area of biology. So we focused on how people learn and think about biology. And what we've done is we've measured these three kinds of thinking with a number of measures from the cognitive science literature. And we've also measured people's misconceptions about biology. And the question is, how are these kinds of intuitive cognitive constraints predictive of people's misconceptions? Um, and when the way that we ask this question is we actually divide misconceptions up sort of in a way that I showed you before. So we have misconceptions that seem teleological in nature. We have misconceptions that seem anthropocentric in nature. Yes, that one's right. And, and we have uh, misconceptions that seem essentialist in nature. And the idea is to look at whether the relations between these things are sort of specific, whether essentialist thinking is its own thing, or whether, in general, these constraints are related to misconceptions. All right? Does that make sense? So the question, the prediction is that teleological thinking should predict teleological misconceptions, if we're right about this. 
it might not be that related to other kinds of misconceptions. And likewise, you can make the same sort of prediction for anthropocentric and essentialist thinking. So these should relate to related misconceptions, but not necessarily unrelated misconceptions. I mean, the alternative is, is perfectly plausible, right? That people use a lot of this kind of control-based thinking and have a lot of misconceptions. And there's not necessarily a close correspondence. Are you, are you saying that different people have a different way of looking at the world, so that either teleological or anthropocentric or thinkers? No, I'm not, I'm not putting people into one of these groups. That's a great question. What I'm saying is... People, might, people vary in the degree to which they find these three kinds of construals convincing or useful. And, and that variability is independent of one another. So you might be really teleological, but not very anthropocentric. And so what I'm saying is, if you're someone who's really teleological, are you, or is the degree to which you're teleological or not predictive of the degree to which you tend to hold teleological misconceptions in biology. Does that make sense? Okay. And here's just a very quick summary of what we found. Essentialist thinking is significantly related to essentialist misconceptions and unrelated to the other two kinds of misconceptions. Likewise, anthropocentric thinking is strongly related to anthropocentric misconceptions. It's not related to the other kinds of misconceptions. And the world is not quite a perfect place. Teleological thinking is strongly related to teleological misconceptions, but it also has some relation. So people who are high in this also tended to um, agree with anthropocentric misconceptions. The idea, maybe there's something about intent, something about goals. Um, that's sort of a question for another day. But I think the take-home message here is that these kinds of construals, these kinds of intuitive thinking, give rise in a very systematic way to kinds of misconceptions, at least in the domain of biology. So how, how is that related to understanding of climate change? Right? That's our next move. All right. So there are a couple reasons why this is a particularly thorny issue when it comes to climate change. And part of it really is an issue of <coughs> climate. And this is something that often gets lost in the public discussion. And there is a difference between climate and weather. And I, and I love this catchphrase by Geek Arndt, that climate trains the weather, but weather throws the punches. Climate, by definition, is a 30-plus year trend in weather. So we're looking at long-term trends in, in weather condition. Um, but ultimately, it is weather that you really care about. So to put this in kind of a local context, um, it is Mookie Betts that you fear, hopefully, if you are a Yankee. Um, but ultimately, it is the, the trainer um, that picks the team that decides the lineup that affects that. And over time, we have climate change, hopefully in this case, for the better. Um, but this is what you end up being affected by. And so this is what organisms really care about. But this often is not the way we talk about it. So for example, this shows the temperature anomalies up at the surface of the globe. There are places that are getting colder, in some cases significantly colder, places that are staying about the same, and places especially at high latitudes that are getting markedly um, warmer. So, but all of this gets condensed down to a sound bite, like this is a one degree increase in average global surface temperature. When really what that means is 
there are some places getting colder, some getting um, staying the same, but the vast majority are getting warmer. But that can, encapsulates everything from a minus six degree decrease to a plus almost seven degree increase in that simplification. But that's how we tend to talk about climate change. I mean, think about predictions for the year 2100. We talk about an increase in global average temperature of two to six degrees. The Paris Accord was looking at a one and a half to two degree increase in global average temperature. But all of that encapsulates a lot of variability. But if you're a tree frog sitting in the notch of a tree, you could care less what the 30-year running average of global average surface temperature is. You care about whether your little nook or cranny is too warm or too cold or too dry um, or too wet for you to survive. And so this is what throws the punches at these, these very hyper-local levels. And what I'd argue is that's the same way that we experience it. Now, that doesn't mean that climate doesn't matter. I mean, a difference in average global temperature is about the average the difference between now and the last ice age. So we're talking about increases of 6 degrees C by 2100 or beyond. It's the same magnitude of now and the last ice age. So it's certainly not insignificant. But as a biologist, I have to interpret that change in climate to a change in weather and as um, we talk about communication, again, it's how people's perception of climate is affected by weather. So one really good example of this comes locally. I mean, for those of you who don't know, the, the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of other large bodies of water on, on Earth right now. And so in the summer of 2012, if you remember back, the water temperatures in the Gulf of Maine were one to three degrees C higher than the climatology. So if we look at that blue line, that's the normal temperature. That's the climatology, that's the 30-year running average, what it normally is. That gray line shows what it was in 2012. So even early on in the, the season, um, this is just over the course of the year, you could see it was substantially warmer than the climatology. To the middle of the summer, it reached up to three degrees warmer. So we're talking about increases in climate of three, two to six degrees, but we're already experiencing that in weather right now. So what that meant was that lobsters molted a lot faster. We know that lobsters, like other organisms, all respond to temperature. They grew faster, they molted faster. Um, and it flooded the market. In this part of the world, the way that works is the US lobster fishers get their pots in the water before the Canadians do. So in this case, the market was flooded by the US before the Canadians even got their pots in the water. Um, it led to a huge international um, debacle where um, the Canadian fishers, um, some of them went bankrupt. And the, the good news for us is that lobster tails were cheap for a long time. Um, but, but these are things that happen because of, of weather, because of these short-term extremes. And so when we talk about climate, really uh, a lot of it is the increase in these, these extremes. But the other way to look at this then is we have these, these extremes that, that punctuate long-term change, but some of these impacts are difficult to perceive because so much of our perception is based on recent memory. So you know, this is the, the proverbial frog in the, the, the pot of boiling water that if you I've never tried this, but you know, if you turn up a, a, a pot of water um, slow enough that the frog is only going to detect a lack of change, and so it actually will stay in there to the boiling point. And again, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but you get the idea that if change happens slowly enough, it's very difficult to perceive. So as one example, I mean, this is a picture taken um, at uh, a, a recreational um, fishing landing where you know, I think most of us say this is a pretty good catch. If we went out and we caught that, that catch in one day, we'd say that was pretty good until I compare it to the same location in 1958 where these are whale cod. I mean, this is what used to be caught 
here in New England um, with whale cod. And it's only that comparison by looking at the data, by looking at, in this case, images, that really shows us how our perception of normal has changed. Um, and we can look at this over, over time series. We look at 1958, 65, 79, 85, and 2007. And while initially this looked like a pretty good haul, now comparing this to what the baseline was, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so good. So just like a cup of coffee used to cost five cents, now it's four bucks, um, we accept that as normal because that's what we perceive um, based on our, our recent memory. So these, these changes are hard to detect in a lot of cases. So as scientists, we rely on data, right? So I can show you, for example, the increase in global average temperature here as an inverse function of something on the, the x-axis. It looks like a really good relationship. It looks like we're onto something until I show you that that is the number of pirates. Um, so this is the global average temperature versus the inverse of the number of pirates. So if we go along with this, the solution to climate change um, is basically to increase the number of pirates. And that will solve the whole thing. Now, of course, we know that's not true. But, but why is it that we're, um, we're pretty confident that we understand this relationship, where, where carbon dioxide and other drivers um, are the, the causal factor of changes in, in temperature? So even though this is a lot more complex, why is it that as scientists we have a, a much higher confidence in our understanding of this relationship than we think we do in, in this one? Just as an example of how this plays out then in the public sphere, this is a paper in, in Science. I mean, Science is the journal where um, you see grown scientists cry when they get rejected. I mean, we've all been rejected by science on multiple occasions. But this is a paper that looked at the upslope and downslope distribution of 64 species of plants um, on a mountainside that was warming. So the expectation is that things get warmer at the base of the mountain. You should expect to see the, the, the distribution of limits shift upwards towards um, higher elevations in response to that temperature. Well, exactly the opposite happened. So despite you can see this increase in warming, you had a marked downslope shift in those 64 species of plant. The blogosphere went nuts. Another IPCC claim contradicted the new science. Um, it was all over um, the, the, the kind of denier literature. Well, if you read the paper, why is that? It's because not only did temperature increase, but precipitation also increased. In other words, it's a science paper that shows that plants respond to temperature and water. Which, and, and I don't fault the authors at all. I actually had a very similar paper that had a very similar response and is now in the um, the, the Heartland Institute's climate denier literature showing supposedly the climate change doesn't happen. Um, but, but why did this engender such controversy? Why is it that a paper that shows that plants respond to temperature and water end up making such a, um, a commotion in, in the literature? So this, again, is, is where, as a, as a climate scientist, as a biologist, I really turn to people like John to try to help me understand these processes. I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure we don't have an answer yet. I'm not sure I can go that far. But um, one way to think about how people understand climate change is to go back to the sort of constraints that I was talking about before. So maybe, like other areas of science, we're filtering what we learn about climate change through these intuitive lenses that we've developed. Uh, this is work done by my PhD student Nicole Betts. Uh, for her dissertation, and it's currently ongoing. Um, but what she's done is measure in a, a sample of, right now, shockingly, they're undergraduate psychology majors, um, measured the degree to which these different kinds of thinking are present. 
And what she's looking at is the degree to which these different kinds of thinking might predict people's understanding of climate change. So not misconceptions per se, but their kind of uh, factual responses to an assessment of your understanding of climate change. So the question is, is this kind of intuitive thinking that we've seen relevant for biology also relevant for understanding climate change? And so what she did is she asked people to the extent to which they agreed or disagreed with a, a series of statements about climate change that were misconceptions and that were set uh, um, sort of related to these different kinds of, these different construals, and simply looked at relations between people's acceptance of these kinds of misconceptions and their performance on a measure of, of climate understanding. And what she found was, <clears throat> for teleological thinking and for essentialist thinking, there was a negative relationship. The more you showed these construals, the more of an essentialist you were, or the more of a teleologist you were, the less likely you were to understand climate change. But interestingly, the relationship was reversed for anthropocentric thinking. So people who sort of overestimated the, the role of humans in the world or who reasoned about the rest of the world with kind of by comparison to people actually showed more understanding of both the causes and the effects of climate change. So I think one point this makes is that um, our intuitive understanding can lead to systematic misunderstandings of climate science, but it also might give us some hope for leveraging people's understanding. If we can present information in a way that is consistent with at least some of our intuitive construals-based thinking, we might, that might be a way to help people understand and behave in a way that's helps to mitigate climate change. Do you want to sum up? Go for it. OK. Yeah. So we, we don't have any solutions yet, unfortunately. Um, what we've tried to, the point we've tried to make tonight is that the realities of climate change are very complicated. They're not something that can be summarized in a sound bite. Um, it's, as Brian has said, it's a global phenomenon that plays out on a local level. And at different localities, it plays out in very different ways. It could be an increase in temperature. It could be a decrease in temperature. It could be an increase in rainfall. It could be a decrease in rainfall. It's a, a very complicated pattern. And not only that, another factor that, that Brian has, has made clear is that these kinds of changes always interact with other factors. So it's a complicated phenomenon to begin with. And moreover, the point I've tried to make is that even the clearest information um, is filtered through our intuitive cognitive construles, our, our, the lenses we've developed for understanding the world. And this can be bad because it can lead to systematic misconceptions. It also can be good because it offers some hope for, for leveraging these intuitive ways of thinking to help people understand and behave appropriately with respect to climate change. And I guess the, the message we want you to, to walk away with is the idea that the interdisciplinary study of, of ecological and psychological factors may help us understand and address these challenges for people's understanding of climate change. 
Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of a Science for the Public event. Please check out our website, www.scienceforthepublic.org, for videos of all our events, lists of upcoming events, our weekly Sci News Roundup newsletter, and timely science information.